For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, from StoryCorps in Tucson, a grandfather shares a story of adventure in the Philippines during World War II. Lorraine Rivera talks about interviewing Governor Ducey following his State of the State address. Meet the author of a new biography about Elizabeth Blackwell, a woman pioneer in the field of medicine. And the first installment of a new radio series called Under the Sun with Andrew Brown. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The nonprofit group StoryCorps says listening is an act of love. Hundreds of Tucsonans visited the StoryCorps mobile booth in Tucson last fall. Next, we'll hear avid NPR listener Amber Merchant interview her 92-year-old grandfather, E. Dale Paris, a retired journalist who's had a colorful life. Okay, so my first question for you, Grandpa, uh, because this is my first interview, and I know you've done this hundreds of times. What kind of uh, advice do you have for me as your interviewer? I don't have any advice. I th- you should ask what you want to know <clears throat> if there's anything that's been left out. Well, I feel like I've heard uh, so many of your stories already, all the good ones about uh, your time as a journalist and all your travels and the interesting people you met. And I know kind of a little bit how you met Grandma and little bit about your time uh, in the military and your story about being shot down. And I hear there's a good Margaret Thatcher story I haven't heard yet. But <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, since both of us kind of got talked into us. Um, I, you might wonder why I laugh. Is it my time to say something? I, whatever you want. Yeah. Is it because a good story? When you said Margaret Thatcher, because... Uh, you're thinking about when I referred to my Margaret Mead story. <laughs> Mar- Margaret Mead was a, a favorite of mine, and Margaret Thatcher was not. <laughs> no, I referred to my Margaret Mead story about something that I did one time uh, a long time ago um, when I was trying <clears throat> to be uh, an amateur cultural anthropologist. Well, no, I haven't heard about that before, because last I heard you were a journalist through and through. When did you want to be a cultural anthropologist? (laughs) Just for a day. (laughs) (laughs) When was that? (laughs) About this time of the year in 1944. I was uh, maybe 20 years old at the time, and we were stationed. I was in an Air Force outfit, 13th Air Force, 394 Squadron, 5th Bomb Group, stationed on a... Uh, an abandoned coconut plantation in the Dutch East Indies just off the uh, uh, northwest coast of New Guinea. <clears throat> and while we were stationed there, I used to, between missions, would uh, fool around on, on the uh, beach. You know, we were always close to the beach. I was fascinated by these native people who uh, would come in on outrigger canoes and climb up those trees, and I was amazed at the agility with which they could go up and whack one lick with a machete and get a big bunch of coconuts. (laughs) 
and they would load them into those outrigger canoes and go back out to sea. And I watched to see where they were going, and there was a tiny island that looked uh, like maybe a, a mile and a half away. And uh, <clears throat> I had a little one-man raft that I had salvaged from a bailout, and I made myself two paddles about 18 inches long, and I decided to go to that little island where I had seen these natives go with their coconuts. It was only, you know, maybe a mile and a half away, but uh, but it was um, a kind of a job with, you know, just small paddles. And I got to the island, the little island. There were three or four uh, natives uh, sort of hanging out with a couple of outrigger canoes there. And strangely, they didn't even seem surprised to see me, this gringo soldier, come into their island. And I had learned a few words uh, in uh, melee, which is a medium used throughout the the South Pacific mm-hmm. between people who speak hundreds of languages, enough to ask them, uh, you know, where they lived. And they pointed to a uh, an opening in the in the thick jungle growth, and just said there, and I went and looked and went through almost a tunnel-like path, <clears throat> and uh, uh, and that was where their little village was. But on the way in, up to my right, and on a parallel path on higher ground was a young girl with uh, two buckets of some kind of water on each end of a bar across her shoulders. She was carrying water from a spring, I guess, and... Uh, she was uh, dressed in a sarong, like uh, wrap around from the waist, and not a stitch above the waist, which is quite a sight for a 19-year-old soldier. <laughs> a vivid memory. And uh, she was attractive, but uh, but she was away from me and up on a ridge, and she disappeared in the uh, jungle growth. And I went on into the sort of a, like a dirt path mall with a half a dozen thatch houses that were up on stilts um, about shoulder high. And uh, that was that was where I was going to try to be uh, a goodwill visitor. And how did it go? And so the first person I saw was a little old man sitting up on a, a, a porch in one of these thatch uh, houses, and I offered him a cigarette, which was, you know, what he did in those days. And he took one, and then he reached behind him and brought out a pack of Lucky Strikes and offered me one. <laughs> <laughs> and he had gotten them from some sailor somewhere. And so I went on down through the, just a few houses, you know, maybe a, five or six on each side, and uh, and by that time I had uh, a little uh, cluster of uh, natives around me, you know, wondering what I was doing there and where I'd come from and whatever. And a woman, an older woman, was peeling a piece of fruit that looked like a cross between a mango and a cantaloupe, and she cut off a slice with a knife and offered it to me, and, and I declined because I was, uh, you know, afraid of getting some kind of South Pacific dysentery. And she was offended at my rejection. And in fact, she was 
agitated, and I thought she was trying to get a couple of those young men to to teach me a lesson and um, to learn to be a more gracious guy. I hadn't done my homework. I see, I didn't know that I should not have refused that offer of a slice of cantaloupe or whatever it was. So uh, that was a. That was your opportunity for a hasty retreat. And I thought I better head back for home because I had to walk all the way around, halfway around the island to get my raft back. There is more to Paris's adventure, including getting lost at sea on his way back. You can hear that excerpt on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org, where you can also find more local StoryCorps stories. E. Dale Paris was interviewed by his granddaughter, Amber Merchant, in the StoryCorps mobile booth in Tucson. Joining me now is Lorraine Rivera, the host of Arizona Week, who recently had an opportunity to talk with Governor Ducey following his State of the State address. Hello, Lorraine. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. The number one factor that everyone is always concerned about come time for the State of the State address is the economy. What did uh, Governor Ducey have to say? The governor certainly used that as one of his key points, one of the first things he brought up. He says that Arizona's economy is strong, and his hashtag, as he calls himself, the hashtag governor, is on the rise. He says that he's lowered taxes. Um, It's kind of a semantics issue of whether or not we have a surplus. He says it's not technically a surplus, but we do have a lot of extra money in the budget when it comes to Arizona's uh, purse strings, if you will. So we're in a totally different position today than we were a year ago. We were a billion dollars in the red. Today we have somewhere around $322 million in what I call a cash carry forward because some of it is in one-time funds. So we are going to invest in the state of Arizona going forward, but we're not going to be reckless or throw money around. We want to be responsible so that we make sure that we're not digging in the same hole we just dug out of. The border was a huge um, issue during the campaign. Uh, now that Ducey's been in control for a while, have we seen any changes? Um, the governor wants to create a task force or a unit, a bureau actually is the verbiage, and it, it's a team of DPS officers who are working closely with sheriff departments to see what they can do to really hammer in on what's happening along the border. As we know, Arizona is considered ground zero when it comes to drug and human smuggling. Uh, governor Ducey says that this border strike force has been in operation since uh, September. I spoke with someone in his office who says there have been three operations conducted thus far, 300 arrests, 14 cartel members, 4,400 pounds of marijuana, 194 pounds of meth, 21 pounds of heroin. And that's significant about the heroin because Governor Ducey says that's about a million individual hits, which of course is becoming a bigger problem in this community. And he says that the federal government hasn't done what it's expected to do, and this is his response to that. The federal government has failed Arizona in so many ways, and so we're working with the feds on how we can improve that relationship, and we have turned the page. We're seeing some signs of of attention and activity and investment, so what we want to do is, is collaborate with them where possible, but this is still about public safety for the citizens of Arizona, so this is my responsibility as, as governor, and we're embracing it. Governor Ducey ties together public safety with child safety, which leads into education, and what's going on on that front? Education this year, we're going to see Prop 123, a May special election. I think it's May 17th. 
voters are going to decide whether or not to change some language in the state constitution. Changing that language would pump an estimated $3.5 billion back into education. Sounds like a great thing. There are some opponents who are saying that really only adds up to about $300 extra per pupil throughout the state of Arizona. Is it really worth changing the state constitution? The governor said in his state of the state, this is the way to do it. And he says to all the cynics out there that this is the only way to do it, and you better get excited about it because it's going to happen. It has overwhelming support. So Prop 123 will be on the ballot May 17th, and the governor is excited about pumping more money into education. That figure is estimated at $3.5 billion. He says it will be the solution for education in Arizona. There'll be more with Lorraine Rivera and Governor Doug Ducey on Arizona Week, Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. on PBS 6. In the words of author Robert Nordmeyer, Elizabeth Blackwell brought about a major social change in the United States and Europe, yet her only goal was to become a physician. In that pursuit, she unwittingly became a pioneer. Today, one-third of all physicians and half the students in medical school are women. Where there was once only one, today there are many. Nordmeyer documents the story in his new book, The Other Side of Courage, the saga of Elizabeth Blackwell. Nordmeyer says the 23-year-old teacher, who moved from England to New York with her family in 1832, began her medical journey for personal reasons. Yeah, it was it was really kind of a strange way that it came about. She has this friend, Mary Donaldson, and Mary was dying of cancer. Elizabeth hadn't gone to see her for a while. She was feeling bad about that, so her mother encouraged her to go see Mary, pay her respects, and try to pepper her up get her spirits high. Uh, When Elizabeth got there, Elizabeth uh, noticed that Mary was very, very ill, could hardly talk. And so she said, how are you feeling, Mary? How are you doing? And Mary said, not well. And she said, the male doctors just don't care about female patients. Remember, this is back in 1840. So she said, you know, Elizabeth, If I had a female doctor, I wouldn't have all this pain and I wouldn't be suffering as much. And then she looked at Elizabeth and she said, you know, you've got the the intelligence and you've got the interest. You should become a doctor. And Elizabeth said, well, that's impossible. Women are not allowed to become doctors in this day and age. She said, and besides that, uh, just the thought of working in the body is abhorrent to me. I I just wouldn't want to do that. And so Mary said, yes, but you'd be so good at it. Well, Elizabeth left. Mary, unfortunately, died shortly after that. And Elizabeth started getting this haunting voice of Mary. And this this was going on day and night. And Elizabeth said, you know, maybe I should look into what Mary was asking. How in the world did she crack open that door then and be able to pursue a higher education in medicine? Once she decided she was going to become a doctor, she went from a, um, down in Asheville, North Carolina, to a family friend who was a retired doctor and then later became a minister. And she stayed with him and started learning through his books and his library all about medicine. 
So she studied while she taught school there in, in um, Asheville, North Carolina. Then he suggested she go to Philadelphia and try getting into some of the schools of medicine there, which she was totally rejected. And But yet she met this one doctor who saw that in her. And so he encouraged her to start looking at smaller schools, what they called country schools. And Geneva College up in upstate New York was a country school in that classification. And when the dean, Charles Lee, got the letter, he didn't know what to do with it. Never had a woman ask for admission into a medical school. So after a discussion with a few other of the professors there, they decided that this would be given to the class, the medical class, and let them decide because they're the ones that would have to um, work with this woman in a classroom setting, a completely foreign environment. So they gave it to the students, thinking that would just obliterate it right there. It wouldn't, you know, wouldn't go any further. One thing you have to know about the country schools, especially this one up in upstate New York, is that these boys were rowdy. They came off the farms, off the rural areas. So they weren't the civilized type of student, you know, you would imagine. They were rowdy. So they thought, well, well, this will be fun. You know, we'll have this woman in here. Yeah, okay. So, and they voted yes. Let's do it. What do you think some of Elizabeth's strengths as a caregiver and a physician were? What do you think she was able to bring to the profession that up to that time had not been part of it? Empathy. Strong empathy. She could feel the pain of these people. She had a strong desire to do the impossible. As, you know, example, she became a doctor against the greatest of odds. But she wanted to see people achieve a better life. And the poor people in the mid-1800s did not have that opportunity, did not have any kind of chance to get good medical care. Um, I think this was one of the things, one of the impetus that got her going was that she could do something for the poor that was not getting any treatment. And uh, so empathy, I think, was the biggest character um, trait that she had. What did Elizabeth Blackwell do to help other women follow in her footsteps? Exactly um, one thing, example. She encouraged her sister, Emily, to become a doctor, which she did. Shortly after Elizabeth became a doctor, a school in Cincinnati opened up their medical school to women. Women started flooding in just by virtue of knowing that now uh, it can be done. Elizabeth opened that door so I would say by example, she gave the women encouragement. And also through her talks, she would go out and she would give talks to women. And things started changing slightly at that point. But you have a very important statistic in your book. When she died in 1910, how many women were either operating as doctors or pursuing degrees? 7,400 women had become doctors when she died. She became a doctor in 1849. She died in 1910, and in that span, 7,400 women became doctors because of her. I talked with Robert Nordmeyer about his book, The Other Side of Courage, the saga of Elizabeth Blackwell. You can hear Nordmeyer read an excerpt on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Daily life is an ongoing struggle for the unemployed. Changes to the economy and state legislation have made getting short-term manual labor jobs more difficult. 
next, Andrew Brown visits Southside Presbyterian Church, a place that provides safety and support for the unemployed and homeless, who gather there in hopes of finding a day's work. In the first installment of the new series, Under the Sun. Quantos, quantos, vámonos, vámonos. <laughs> I'm just playing with the people. Right? Free workers today. <laughs> I'm new in this town, so I don't have a. There's not a lot of job right here, man. So we have to come here. Where are you from? I'm from Israel. Really? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was living in Mexico for the almost 25 years. It's hard, man, because I was looking job for for restaurants and companies, but. I was asking for the solution. And, uh, so that's why we came here, because they don't ask for any solution. We can get a job every day. So they don't care, they just come and pick you up, that's it. But I mean, do people take advantage of that situation? Oh yeah. Oh, How, in what way? The first week I came to Tucson, I was working for the one guy over there, and he was, he was paying me $30 for a week. And, and he gave me one plate of food a day. I painted a house yesterday. Have you ever painted a house? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think you have to get a little experience to go over there because if you don't know anything, you say yes, I know how to do it. You make a mistake, you have to pay for it. <laughs> or probably you can call the cops or whatever. I don't know. Jay, what is a good day for you? What do you What do you hope to make when you come out here? Eighty bucks, seventy-five bucks. Depend on the on the how many what kind of job you're gonna get. How does that compare to where you were living in Mexico? much better you know what what I make one if one one day right here that's what I was making over there for the um, seven days a week we came from another country looking for for a better life it's hard oh I, I've lived I gotta go man thanks thank you thank you thank you I got a job today man thanks <laughs> can I have you say your name Eliasar Castellanos this is the Southside Worker Center is a program from the Presbyterian Church and they allow us to use this parking lot. Uh, you don't have to be looking for work on the street. You have a, a safe place in here. Nobody come and bother you or something. Many people take advantage because they think we only have undocumented people here. But doesn't matter if they have documents or not. They have the same rights and they they supposed to be treated on the same way than any anybody else. So that's, that's amazing. That's amazing job that what the church does in here. And I'm blessed for that. We're a good bunch of guys down here looking to work. I'm homeless right now. Just trying to get some work here so I can uh, get a bus to get out of here. Do you like Tucson? No, everybody's living on the street here. It seemed like it was easier in the older days. If you had a job, it didn't matter if it was a gas station, you had a house and kids. Now it's getting a little tougher. 53 years old. What do you What do you want to happen next for you? Get a job. Uh, I got a girl. Like settle down, or it's too late. <laughs> What's too late? It's never too late. Uh, 80. <laughs> 80 is too late. I like, I like it here because we can help people. We're homeless, but we can help people. Me and my boyfriend, we work here in the laundry room, here in the, for the church. Is this your boyfriend? God, no. <laughs> I like people that work. Huh. 
<laughs> and what's your name? Gracie. Gracie and Cowboy, that's my man. <laughs> my Cowboy, what can I tell you about him? Right now I'm pampering him, Andrew, because he burned his leg. Being a bad boy. Drunk, but God bless him, God bless both of us. Cowboy, come here. Cowboy, this is Andrew. Mm -hmm. How you doing, man? Yeah. How long have you two been together? About a little over three years. How's it going? All right. She seems feisty. Oh, yeah. No, because you're because struggling, but I, I take care of him. I took a trip one with Captain half a gallon Captain Morgan, and I went to camp, and I burnt my leg. <laughs> so how long have you guys been working here at the church? I've been here about four years, and she's been here about three. Three years, yeah. How long have you been in Tucson? Uh, since 2011, the first week of December. And what brought you out here? I walked out. You walked out here? Yeah. From where? Indiana. Yeah. How long did it take you? Uh, I stopped off in San Antonio for about a month, and then I walked out here. It took about eight days to get here. Why did you uh, stop in Tucson? I, I just like the weather. I worked for the VA for 14 years. I worked, I worked for the government for about, what, almost 20 years. How do you think I am? They say a, a gentleman never uh, guesses a woman's age. But, okay. <laughs> That's in the man book. <laughs> yeah! I'm 57. I would have guessed younger. Thank you. If you worked for the VA for all those years, how how did you end up uh, being homeless? I, I thought, but I thought wrong. You know, I just met a boyfriend and that, and just... Um, after four years in that, and he was an alcoholic, but I was comfy because I had a home, and he was abusive with me, and just came to to an end in that, and he kicked me out. He didn't like me fighting back, and you know we women don't shut their mouth, right? He didn't like that constant beating, you know, and I went to a park, and and just sat there and cried and that, and he came up. But God, but Jesus sent Cowboy to me, because Cowboy takes me everywhere. He don't complain or nothing. That's my man, that's my boy right there, but I love him. Under the Sun is a new wide-ranging series of voices produced by Andrew Brown. We are presenting the first ever live recording of Arizona Spotlight, January 24th at the El Casino Ballroom. The guests will include author Lydia Otero, poet Logan Phillips, and film essayist Chris DeShiel, plus the debut of the new community micro-storytelling project, Demolo. The event is free and open to the public. You can find information at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you.